You're listening to Icebreakers, the podcast exploring all things Canadian and Eurasian, business, culture, and personalities. The series is produced by CECC, the Canada-Eurasia Chamber of Commerce. We are a nonprofit focusing on trade, investment, and good relations between Canada and the countries of Eurasia. I'm your host, Nathan Hunt, one of the founders of CECC and former chairman of the National Board. I invite you to tune in regularly for valuable insights related to the region. I'm joined today by Darren Klink, President and Director of Aris Minerals, a Canadian junior mining and exploration company. He's a graduate of the Haskane School of Business at the University of Calgary and is a highly regarded mining executive with a broad range of international experience. Mr. Klink was most recently president of Bluestone Resources, a Canadian public company focused on the development of a gold project in Guatemala. And prior to that, he spent more than 10 years in Australia and Canada uh, as a senior executive for Oceana Gold Corporation, a Canadian and Australian public company with operating gold mines in New Zealand, the Philippines, and the USA. Good morning, Darren. Good morning, Nathan. Great to be here. It's a pleasure to welcome you. Please tell us a few words about yourself. Where did you grow up? Uh, how did you get interested in mining? Did, did you always know that you would be a miner, that mining and exploration was in your future? What, uh, what got you on this track? Yeah, well, no, uh, there, there was really no uh, early premonition of, of mining and exploration. In fact, I grew up uh, as a fourth generation on the family farm in uh, south central Alberta, about an hour northwest of Calgary, a little place called Didsbury. So uh, there was plenty of oil and gas you know, around us, uh, but I grew up as a, as a country bumpkin, and uh, it was not really until number of years after finishing university and um, and traveling a little bit that I ended up in, in Vancouver and uh, through a friend was introduced to um, a mining executive and uh, and got involved there. But uh, always been involved in the capital markets, interest in the capital markets, investing, but more on the oil and gas space, I guess, coming from Alberta. I want you to know I'm still a country bumpkin. Well, me too, actually, in many regards. I still like to get my <laughs> fingernails dirty and get out in the dirt, to be honest. I don't think you can kind of beat that out of you. No, I would agree with that. Now, you have a lot of pretty exotic countries, I would say, on your resume. The Philippines, New Zealand, Australia, El Salvador, and that crazy wild place south of the border called the USA. <laughs> Guatemala, Laos, Myanmar. Did you ever live in any of those places? Do you have any stories you can tell us? Yeah, well, I, I did. I spent uh, I spent eight years, almost eight years living in Australia. I spent a little bit of time, I guess almost 20 years ago, I lived in Thailand for a while as well. I had spent some time living in the U.S. for a short period. But, uh, you know, really since 2014, I've been back here in, uh, in Canada. But uh, it's been uh, quite interesting. I have to say, growing up uh, in rural Alberta, a lot of those places I wouldn't have probably been able to point to in a map. But, um, but mining and exploration has really presented an opportunity to visit many different cultures and countries and, uh, you know, the food and the people and everything in between. So it's been, it's been good. Yeah, there's uh, you, you kind of you tend to bounce around in, uh, in, in this sort of industry. You find yourself in, in neat places at different times, not things that you plan for. I guess one of the early experiences in um, the northern part of Mexico, in fact, one of the few places where, um, where they actually get snow in the wintertime high up in the Sierra. Uh, and uh, we had a very close encounter uh, with a, a light plane accident. It was it was very uh, it was very hot. It was in the summer. You're high up, so the the captain wanted to try and get away, you know, before the storms kind of set in. And um, we had a six seat Cessna uh, up up in the mountains and a kind of a, a man made sort of cutout 
strip in the middle of a pine forest. And uh, because we need to get all the weight underneath the wings, I was had to move from the back seat to the middle seat. So there was three people in two seat belts. Uh, and he, uh, he fired up that plane at the end of the runway, sent the geologist two thirds the way down to kind of as a marker, because if we weren't off the ground by then he had to abort and, uh, he got the plane fired up, headed down that, uh, kind of man-made carved out runway. And about maybe a quarter of the way down, we came about six feet off the ground and then the plane abruptly came right back down again as we're hurtling down. So he was having a hard time getting lift. Oh dear. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It was, um, it was, a, it was a little bit scary to be honest, but we, you know, we had our, we entrusted everything in the captain, of course, as you do when you're in those, those light aircrafts. And, uh, and just before we got to the, the kind of the abort spot, the plane did lift, but once we lifted and got above those pine trees, we had wind shear and, uh, it shoved, it shoved the plane. And I, I don't know how close, but it was very, very close that the wing of the plane was, was going to crash into these, these pine trees. And uh, the fellow beside me, who was our geologist and had done this trip many times before, when his eyes opened uh, and were <laughs> obviously concerned, the rest of us were concerned. But we we luckily got out of it, and the captain gave the thumbs up, and I crawled over the the second seat and got my seatbelt on in the back row, and and we made it to uh, Chihuahua. So, wow, yeah. So that was a close encounter. Yeah, that's probably a bit too close. Um, I think you never really want to have those uh, sort of experiences, but. Uh, but, you know, the, the number of people that, you know, I've spoke with over the years that do work in our industry. And, of course, you do rely on helicopters and light planes. And, you know, of course, mines today are, uh, are discovered and operated often in remote parts of the world. I mean, these are the sorts of tools you need to get there. And so now you had a story about the Philippines. Tell us what happened in the Philippines. I remember. Yeah, well, the uh, the, the project that we developed in the Philippines, this is back in, uh, in 2000, first, first went in there in 2007. I started to do a bit of research on it. And in fact, in that area, um, historically back in the early 1900s, but in fact, I think as late as the early 1980s, was populated by a, a tribal group and they were headhunters. Yikes. Yeah. 20, 25 years later, we were there and uh, that tribe had, had kind of moved on and dispersed. But I understand that it was in the early 1980s, so only... 25 years earlier where the last head was taken. So did, did you lose any uh, exploration engineers to the headhunters? No, no, I not, not at all, but still pretty remote to get in there. Difficult place to get to. And uh, of course now the infrastructure has been put in much easier to get to. And you had a story about Myanmar. Yeah, we, um, another one of the really interesting places having a chance to go to is it was kind of in the, the window when things started to open up Myanmar and the, and the junta, it kind of stepped aside, although obviously things have changed there in the last couple of years again. But um, yeah, the uh, we were there looking at a couple of projects actually in the eastern part of the country and uh, had, had flown into Yangon uh, and then traveled up to Nipidaw. And one of the fellows that was with us had been in and out of there quite a bit years before into Mandalay, which is to the north. And, uh, and he told of a story uh, about Nipidaw, like he was flying in and out from Yangon to, to Man Man uh, Mandalay and, and going over two thirds of the way up uh, in the plane, looking out the window and seeing this mass construction site. But it was in the middle of nowhere, effectively, right? It's, you know, I think four hours by car north of, of Yangon and not really knowing what it was. And no one really knew what it was. Until uh, a, a couple of years later, we're on, I think it was a Friday morning, there was an announcement from the government uh, in Yangon that as of the following Monday, 
the capital city was being changed from Yangon to Nipidaw, and all the public service workers would be requested and expected to report to work on Monday morning in a city that was, you know, a four-hour drive to the north. And here is this new capital city that effectively was created, complete with a big parliament building, complete with, believe it or not, a 20-lane highway in front of the, the parliament, complete with accommodation and lodging for all the public service workers. And so, yeah, we found ourselves, I found myself in Nipidaw in this manufactured capital city and all this infrastructure, but not many people around. But that didn't last. The capital is still Rangoon, I thought, last time I checked. All the government offices and everything is in Nipidaw. Is it right? Is that right? I'm showing my ignorance. Yeah, so fascinating part of the world. So you had a story about the USA too, as I recall. Well, yeah, the, um, another one, I guess, in my experience in, uh, in South Carolina a number of years ago where we, uh, we acquired, this is when I was with Oceana Gold, and we acquired a company, and they had done a great job on, on advancing a project and, and getting the permits, and, and then we had acquired it and then built the mine in, uh, in South Carolina. But I think I didn't realize, and most people that you come across, the U.S. sort of gold rush in the northern part of California is very well known. Uh, 1849. But in fact, the first gold rush uh, in the United States occurred in South Carolina. Gold rush in South Carolina? Gold rush in, in South Carolina. So the first gold was it was discovered not far from where we developed that gold mine. And, uh, and it was actually discovered, I think, by a 10 or 12 year old boy, 1799, I think it was. He was out playing in a, in a local stream and, and came back and uh, with a 17 pound rock that was kind of shiny. 17 pounds of gold. That's a lot of gold. Well, at the time, they didn't know it was gold. They, they didn't know it was gold. And so uh, the father looked at it, didn't recognize it. They were farmers. And, uh, and so it, it sat in the house as a doorstop for a couple of years. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then um, I guess the story, as it goes, was that the, the father had taken it in to town one day to a local jeweler. And the local jeweler had identified what it was, but the farmer still didn't know what it was. And so the local jeweler ended up purchasing this 17-pound rock that was kind of shiny and I guess nice to look at uh, for, at that time, what was reported as $3.50, which in today's dollars, I think is about $66. And how much was the rock worth in today's dollars? Uh, like half a million. Wow. But the good story from what I understand was that once it kind of got out that in fact there was, uh, that was a gold nugget and, and uh, unfortunately this farmer had kind of lost out. He then went back and actually started to, to look for more and found more gold. So I think he made out okay, but he obviously, uh, he missed out on the first, uh, the first payday. The first big chunk. What a, what a story. Good Lord. And your company, was it Oceana at that time or, or the other one? Oceana Gold, yeah, that uh, that developed that mine in South Carolina, and that's the same deposit that that farmer had uh, had discovered two hundred years earlier. No, different deposit. In fact, there is all sorts of different uh, deposits in that whole belt. We're going right down into Georgia, in fact, and, and then further north up into North Carolina. But uh, yeah, different deposit, um, but uh, same general area, and uh, and not well known in in uh, the United States in terms of the gold. Very rush. interesting. Very interesting. Well, Aris Minerals is, of course, focused on Central Asia, which is the focus of our association and our podcast. What can you tell us about Central Asia? Why, why did you uh, decide to look uh, at that market? Were you, were you familiar with the Eurasian markets before you went there? And uh, what, uh, what was new about working in that part of the world? Right. Yeah. Well, it was actually my, uh, my business partner, uh, Tim Berry, who, uh, who got involved first on uh, and, and focusing really on Kazakhstan. But uh, 
it was through uh, his hard work where he started to evaluate other opportunities around the world and, um, and then came across uh, this opportunity in Kazakhstan. And, and he hadn't uh, you know, been involved in Kazakhstan or, or been there before either. But as he started to pull the layers of the onion back and, and understand more about the country and the geologic endowment, uh, got very excited about it and was able to secure a deal on an asset. And then, you know, really over the last sort of 12 to 14 months, we've been able to pick up significant larger leases. And, and we just were getting more and more excited all the time about the country and the geologic endowment and, uh, and just the opportunity that exists there. But neither of us had ever been there before. So what are your first impressions of Kazakhstan? Do you find it different, uh, uh, similar to Canada? What, uh, what, what impressed you about the city or the people? Yeah, well, I, I think it did spend a little bit of time in, in the cities, but of course, a lot of time out in the, in the rural areas where um, where the project's located. And uh, definitely, again, going back as a as a kid from Alberta, the things that jumped out at me were a lot of the similarities to uh, to Canada. You know, from the perspective of the you're on the same latitude, right? So you see uh, similar things growing, same sort of flowers in the flower boxes, etc. Similar looking cattle on the on the sides of the roads, etc. But of course, um, you know, and, and also like Canada, big country and, and sparse population, right? So lots of wide open space as well. But yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's a country that I'm still learning lots about. But from what I've seen and, and people that I've spoke to that you know have lived there for many years, uh, and and really with a lot of the the changes that have taken place over the last four or five years with the reforms that the government is putting forth, we're really excited about it. And when I compare it to other parts of the world that I visited and, and worked in. I think Kazakhstan has a very bright future uh, over the next uh, 10, 20 years as these are implemented. Now, you talk about reforms, and I remember during the uh, uh, during our Vancouver mining conference on the margins of the AME Roundup, uh, you gave a presentation and you called the, the Kazakh government, you, you, you said that they have a Western approach to doing business. What do you mean by Western approach and what are these reforms that you speak of? How How is their approach different from, from other countries in the region? Yeah, well, I don't think it necessarily just applies to mining. In fact, in, in, in the Western approach, those are the words from President Tokayev in, in January to an address to parliament, in fact. So I don't think I'm, I'm actually, those aren't even my words, but I, I think what he means and what the government, what we've heard from the government and Ambassador Kamaldinov in, um, in Ottawa has been a huge supporter of ours. You know, many chances to speak with him about that as well is that really, I think when it comes to, to mining and exploration, they're very much encouraging Western companies to come and invest and, and make new discoveries that the playing field is perhaps, um, you know, historically, you know, years, years ago, there might've been, you know, special privileges to special groups, but it, it really what I think, um, you know, President Tokayev is, is kind of outlining is that uh, expectations on behalf of the government to, to create opportunities so that investors can feel comfortable in making those investments and, and coming to the country. And, and we've, um, you know, we've seen that uh, firsthand and, and are, are very, um, very comfortable around the, the path forward, particularly when we compare it to other jurisdictions where there's, there's always challenges, always challenges. So you said where, so investors can feel comfortable. Are investors comfortable going to Kazakhstan? Uh, is it considered, I mean, have you had trouble raising capital or, or, or there's no, uh, no misconceptions about the region? You know, there've been some, some, uh, some negative stories coming out of Kyrgyzstan. There've been uh, negative stories in other regions. What, uh, how do you overcome that, 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 those perceptions? Yeah, well, perceptions are, um, are definitely uh, important. There's no doubt. And, and I think, you know, myself included, if we were having this discussion, Nathan, 
you know, 14 months ago, I wouldn't have been able to tell you much about Kazakhstan uh, sitting here in Vancouver. You know, I didn't really know much about that part of the, the world. I hadn't visited there. It's one of the few places that I haven't had a chance to, to kind of get to. And so obviously perceptions are incredibly important. But what, what we found, I think, is, is you kind of uh, better understand it and, and having spent some time there, not, not a lot, but um, you know, I'm looking forward to spending quite a bit of time there over the next number of years uh, as we continue to move the project forward. And you come back with those stories and experiences and you share those. And, um, you know, we're also, you know, expect to have other investors and analysts, et cetera, come over and visit. In many cases, I think for the first time. Uh, you start to see these things for yourself, uh, and um, and and it and it resonates. It resonates very well. So um, you know, I think when we when we think about investors and raising capital, we've been we've been fortunate that we've been able to raise um, you know capital last year as a private company. We're still a private company right now, but but uh, are working uh, quite shortly actually on um, on a listing on the Toronto Stock Exchange venture. But what we have definitely found is that Europe uh, and the UK they understand. Central Asia very well. Of course, it's closer, and they they understand that Kazakhstan is, is definitely the leading um, you know country in that jurisdiction, in that area, from an investment perspective. But we still have plenty of work, I think, to do um, here in North America to improve that understanding. Does Kazakhstan have special programs to help uh, junior miners uh, to attract junior miners? Do they have special parts of the law that maybe are absent in, in other jurisdictions? Uh, I don't know about necessarily, I would refer to as special, special programs, but I think the transparency and also the, the ability to stake and, and acquire mineral licenses, uh, the ability to get permits to initiate uh, drill programs, very straightforward and, and expedient, uh, much more so than, than many other jurisdictions. In fact, I think even here in Canada or, or many of the Latin American sort of countries, it takes much longer to do that. And so... Um, I, I think that in itself is something that's a real attraction for, for companies such as ourselves, the ability to, to get in, acquire ground, have um, you know, legal, legal tenor uh, over those, those licenses, and then actually be able to get to work. Mm-hmm. Is the Kazakh government supportive? I mean, I'm surely they're supportive. Is, is there anything they could be doing more that, uh, uh, in your opinion, might help uh, attract uh, more investors or speeding things up or doing something differently? You know, I, I've been very impressed with, um, you know, the candid discussions that, that, and I know Tim as well. Uh, Tim, you know, my partner, business partner on this, in fact, is relocating his family to, uh, to Kazakhstan, which is a pretty big commitment as well. And I think it, you know, underpins our commitment at RS Minerals to Kazakhstan and the opportunity here. You know, we found that, you know, our engagement with, um, you know, the authorities in Kazakhstan, I mentioned about Ambassador Kamaldinov and his, um, his team in Ottawa, um, the Kazakh Invest team um, out, of, out of Washington, D.C. Both, you know, both those offices have been very supportive of Aris and, and, and helping us to, to maneuver in these very early years of Aris's life, really over the last sort of 12 months. And, um, you know, I think as, as we all say, I mean, we're all sort of supporters of Kazakhstan, supporters of, of RS Minerals, and, uh, and supportive, supportive of, um, you know, exploration and development in, uh, in Kazakhstan for the important minerals that, that we need in our society every day. Uh, and in fact, with things like copper, even more so if we want to continue to electrify uh, globally, we're going to need a lot more copper than what we have today. So Darren, let me be frank. There was some unrest in the country at the start of the year. Uh, and God knows there's plenty of uh, unrest in the, in the country's uh, big, big neighbor. How are you able to overcome that? Has that 
jaded investor perceptions, or is that something that you think uh, has gone by the wayside? It's no longer a factor. Yeah, I think you know. I think the crisis that that took place in early January, it's fair to say, I think surprised everyone, uh, and you know, even companies and and business executives that have been involved uh, in Kazakhstan for many years, I think were, were caught off guard, as I think even the, the government was. You know, for us, and I think for for many of those individuals and companies as well, the the swiftness at which the government was able to really manage that situation and turn it around. Uh, and really get things back on track, I think was um, was very well received. In fact, you know, I think it's even in many regards from um, from a process perspective, with some of the some of the bureaucracy that exists in all governments. I mean, including Canada and the United States and all the Western worlds, we probably have some of the worst of it. But we've actually even seen some improvements um, to processes, you know, since that that's actually happened as well. When we look at the conflict, uh, the Russian-Ukraine conflict, um, you know, we definitely do get questions about that and what sort of impact it's, you know, our business is having in Kazakhstan. Uh, I, I think that it would be, you know, not really being forthright to disregard the fact that you know, the second longest border in the world exists between Russia and Kazakhstan, second only to the one that's uh, between Canada and the United States, of course. But, but we haven't had an impact. And I think that, you know, short of obviously the, the volatility that you've seen in currencies in Central Asia, for example, you know, the, the Kazakh government and, and many of the other countries really in that region have all taken a, you know, a line to um, not make it overly political uh, and, and focus on their economies. And, uh, and also that, you know, I think what everyone wants is, uh, you know, is a speedy resolution to this, this conflict. And, and that's definitely what we're hoping for as well. Amen to that. Amen to that. So you're working towards a listing. What what uh, what's the time frame for that? You know, we've been we've been working on a listing here over the last number of months, and um, and things seem to be coming along quite well. So we're hopeful uh, here over the next uh, you know next month or so we should be um, getting a listing on the Toronto Stock Exchange venture. It's quite an exciting opportunity for us, and and I think you know in this sort of uh, era, uh, really the first North American company focused on metals exploration and, and development uh, listed in uh, listed in North America operating in, in Kazakhstan. So uh, I know, uh, you know, the embassy and, and Kazakh Invest and our partners in Kazakhstan are um, big proponents as well. So exciting, exciting times for us as we move forward. And we'll give you a chance to do a little ad for the company. What are you going to be mining and why is it uh, better than, than any other competitors in the region? Yeah, sure. So, so we're not going to be mining anything. Uh, we we have a, a quite a, a significant copper gold deposit in the northeastern part of the country, up in Pavlodar, that we have an option to uh, to earn in on and, and acquire. And then we've also um, uh, acquired a number of other mineral leases and licenses in that in that same area, right? Kind of within a two hour, three hour uh, drive of of our base in the northeastern part of uh, of the country. Uh, and our focus is on copper gold. And so uh, it's all about uh, discovering and, and also in terms of the deposits that we do discover or that we do have, it's uh, ultimately making them bigger. And, and hopefully at some point then in the future, they're uh, to a point that someone does actually perhaps RS down the road want to develop those into operating copper mines. Well, that's great. But, but you, so you think you will not be doing the mining yourself? You think you're, you're going to do exploration and, and pass on the assets? Is that the, is that the plan? Yeah, our focus right now uh, is really on the exploration and the development. This is one of the reasons why I think 
we think about strategic metals and we think about, you know, the stuff in everyday world that we need today, everything around us, everything in my office right here is either grown or it comes from the earth. And it takes a, it takes a long time, you know, from discovery of a, of a mineral deposit to mining. In fact, you know, there's various different statistics, but I think for large copper mines, I mean, it can be, you know, 15 or 20 years from initial discovery through to actually seeing that copper come out of the ground. And it's one of the reasons as well why, you know, many of the analysts in, the, in New York, New York City, Wall Street, for example, are pointing to the fact that, you know, copper and, and the supply demand curve on, on copper is, is really going to get tight here over the next three, four years. So, you know, I think for us, we've got a, a significant head start because the project that you know, we're focused on uh, has had quite a bit of work on it uh, over the last call, you know, 10, 15 years. But, but we see a real opportunity here to grow that and, and enhance it. And, and that's really going to be our focus here over the next two to three years. Not a bad time to be holding a copper asset is what I'm hearing. Absolutely. And uh, I think if you if we pay any attention to what these uh, Wall Street analysts are saying, the, you know, the price of copper is going to go up again, just based on supply demand. Right. I mean, the electrification of the world requires metals and, and copper is one of the most strategic for that as well. Now, again, I'll show my ignorance. Is your deposit a lot of gold with a little bit of copper or primarily copper with a little bit of gold? Yeah, it's an interesting one. It's similar to project I was involved with in the Philippines many years ago, where it's, it's actually got quite a high gold content. It's a copper, uh, copper gold project, but quite a high, uh, high gold content currently. But again, I mean, this is, uh, as they refer to, it's a treasure hunt. So we're out looking for more and, and we'll see what mother, mother nature's put there. Well, good for you. Do you have any advice for Canadian companies that want to go to Kazakhstan? What, what would you tell them? Yeah, well, I think Canadian, North American, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we're, it's not a it's not a jurisdiction. It's not a part of the world where, um, you know, perhaps for the most part, there's, we've had a lot of experience in, in our space, particularly the companies that are that are, are listed here in Canada or, or the United States. There tends to be more of that north south sort of trade and, and, and understanding. So Latin America being, of course, a stronger um, part. But I think, yeah, I mean, the advice would be um, to get over there and, and have a look. I mean, it was probably one of my biggest surprises and all the all the places I've over the years traveled to, worked in, lived in uh, when I went to Kazakhstan uh, you know, late last summer and, and came back. I was, was blown away by the opportunity and the people and the infrastructure. And um, yeah, it was uh, it's get over there and have a look because I think they're really um, they're doing what they need to do to uh, to incentivize and encourage investment, and not only in the mineral space. I think the next you know ten or twenty years are going to be very exciting there. Yeah, I have to agree with you. I think Almaty is a beautiful city with the mountains in the background, but Nur Sultan is absolutely magical. I don't know. Did you have a chap a chance to get up to the capital while you were there? I did, yeah, and in fact, you know, one of the pictures I show uh, show our investors and, and friends is a picture that I took outside the out the the hotel room uh, window uh, when I opened up the drapes, and it reminded me of years ago when I was staying in Hong Kong on the Kowloon side, and you look across the the water and you see these big office towers that are lit up with various advertisements, and uh, of course, there was no water there because uh, Nur Sultan. But I saw the big skyscrapers with all the advertisements on the side of them. And it was not, uh, you know, not what I was expecting. A very modern city that uh, was pretty impressive. Very modern and quite eclectic. You have traces of other, other cultures and civilizations all around. You have a Chinese uh, pagoda. You have a Dutch uh, kind of windmill style building. You have all sorts of 
fascinating. You, you have a tent, you know, the largest uh, uh, tent in the world, I, I'm told, is the shopping mall. It's quite, quite a place, isn't it? The, uh, the history in this part of the world is, um, is quite amazing. And to be honest, I'm not across, you know, even a fraction of it. But as I continue to dig, um, it's, it's definitely a, a part of the world that I want to continue to learn more about because it's uh, much older than Canada. You know, 100 years here is old <laughs> Yeah, of course. in, in, in modern times anyways. But uh, no, absolutely. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that, that uh, the CECC has uh, a big event coming up uh, jointly with uh, Kazakhstan. We have our so-called Kazakhstan-Canada Business Council, uh, something that we hold biannually. Uh, and this fall, we will be having a, a joint event where we have working groups focusing on specific sectors and we'll have a plenary session where we, we invite uh, officials from both countries to talk about uh, the potential and developments and changes and, and improvements and reforms uh, in all sorts of sectors. Will uh, RS Minerals be participating in that this year? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we're, we're looking forward to, uh, to participating in that, particularly around the mining and natural resources. And uh, what a great time as well to get involved. And uh, so we're, we're looking forward to it. And I think it's, um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, there's, there's lots of exciting things, I think, on the horizon uh, between Canada and, uh, and Kazakhstan on the trade front, uh, having had a chance to speak with the ambassador about that on a number of occasions. And we, we look forward to, uh, to getting involved as we grow as well. You know, I think I read in your bio that you've raised over 800 million U.S. dollars in equity and debt for, for various mining and metal projects through the years. That seems like quite a bit. What's your secret? Well, it's never, it's not an individual thing. I've been part of teams that have had to do that, you know, around, uh, around the world for various different projects. And um, this is one of the things I think when we think about, you know, mineral development is it does tend to be quite capital intensive, right? It's, it's things that we need in our everyday life. As I said, everything around us is, has either been grown or comes from the earth, but it does require capital in order to, to kind of build and operate these mines. And um, so I don't necessarily know that it's a secret. I guess one thing I'd probably throw up is that sometimes, you know, raising larger amounts is easier than raising smaller amounts. Uh, you know, it usually involves the risk profile, I guess, and the differences. So sometimes raising 2 million bucks is higher than, or harder than raising 200 million. But no, it's, um, it's, a, it's a fascinating industry. As I said, it's not one that I would have kind of picked myself of, of working in when I was a country kid in Alberta, but uh, learned a lot and uh, met lots of very interesting people and visited lots of very interesting places. So I got to ask you before we close out here, what made you a leader in your own, uh, in 30 seconds or less, what made Darren Klink a leader? Mm, it's, a, it's a tough one. You know, I think, you know, you, you never really, or often you never really necessarily think of yourself as a leader when you're growing up. But for me, I think it's my roots, right? I think, you know, I was instilled in me at, as a young kid on the farm, you know, the importance of respect, probably you know, one of the most important values I think out there for leaders today is, you know, you respect and also, you know, to be humble, humility, and really take an interest, I guess, in people. It's not all necessarily about work, right? It's about the people that are around you. And I think, you know, being respectful and, and, and being humble and, and, and taking a real genuine interest is probably, you know, important qualities for, for leadership. Well, good for you. And what does the future hold? Where do you think you'll be five years from now, 10 years from now? Yeah, well, I think I'm, I'm, you know, we're super excited about this opportunity in Kazakhstan. I think, you know, part and parcel for the things that you know, we talked about earlier, we just feel like we're at the right place at the right time. It's, it's definitely a new jurisdiction for me in my career. And so I, I would hope that, you know, five years from now, we're, um, you know, 
we're, we're making some some great success in this country and, and discovering copper gold projects and uh, and ultimately you know helping to put Kazakhstan on a map uh, here in the western North America in particular uh, for, uh, for for mining development and um, yeah just um, I guess on a personal side you know continuing to try and spend as much time as I can with my young family and uh, and my wife as we kind of maneuver through uh, day-to-day life, right? Good for you. Good for you, Darren. Well, thank you so much for being uh, a bridge between Canada and Kazakhstan, between Canada and Central Asia. That's uh, become uh, more important uh, now than ever, I would say, to reinforce those ties, to show that we can continue to do business in the region. Uh, and please keep it up. Well, thanks very much, Nathan. Great to be here. And uh, absolutely, you know, we'll uh, very excited about the future and, uh, and, and keen to, uh, to keep in touch. I've been joined today by Darren Klink, President and Director of Aris Minerals, Canadian junior mining and exploration company, and a highly regarded mining executive with a broad range of international experience. Thank you so much for coming today, Darren, and uh, we look forward to our future contacts. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Nathan. You've been listening to Icebreakers, a podcast produced by CECC, the Canada-Eurasia Chamber of Commerce, supporting trade, investment, and good relations between Canada and the nations of Eurasia. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to the show and give us a review on Spotify, Apple, or Google Podcasts. You can join our LinkedIn group to address questions to guests. To find out more about the series or to make a donation, please check out our website at www.ceccpodcast.com. Thanks for tuning in.